I want to begin by asking you to just listen to some short texts, and you may want to just close your eyes and picture the picture and the painting that they're giving us. From 1 Chronicles 4, they found rich, good pasture, and the land was spacious, peaceful, and quiet. From 1 Chronicles 22, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. From Job 3, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. From Psalm 23, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. From Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. From Psalm 131, But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. From Proverbs 17, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. From Ecclesiastes 9, The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. From Isaiah 32, The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. From Lamentations 3, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. From Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. From Matthew 14, when Jesus heard what, was ha what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. From Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. From Mark 6, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. From Luke chapter 4, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. From 1 Thessalonians 4, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you. From 1 Peter chapter 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 
Silence and solitude are praised in Scripture. They are called and greatly to be desired by God's people. They're commanded by God. In the text that I just read to you, choice land, the very best land, is land that is quiet and peaceful. A successful ruler brings quiet and peace to the land. A trusted shepherd is one who takes us to quiet waters. Powerful and effective words are quiet words. The natural companion of confidence is quietness. And when God comes to our aid, what he brings to our souls is quiet. The godly life that Paul recommends is a quiet life. And the beauty that will last forever, Peter says, is a quiet spirit. That's what God says. But where do we live? Who are the best rulers in the nation? Are they confident, quiet people? Or are they loud, boisterous people? We don't like, in our culture, silence and solitude. It can be intimidating to us. The idea of not having an agenda can make us feel uncomfortable. And waiting, well, that's one of those words and thoughts that's just been given a very bad reputation. We don't like to wait for anything. We don't want to wait in line. We don't like to sit in waiting rooms. And when we conclude that waiting has no real value, then what do we do? We choose the alternative. Someone says, what have you been doing lately? And you say, try and stay busy. Why did we pick that word? Why didn't we say, uh, trying to sit still? What would they conclude about us? Lazy bum. So we tell them what our culture admires, trying to stay busy. As if busyness is a measurement of our worth. Sarah Park McCaughlin, in her book, Meeting God in Silence, tells a story about uh, a very uh, busy and productive salesman. But he was approaching burnout and depression, and he was smart enough to go sit down and talk to someone about it. He picked the minister of the church who just listened to him describe all that was going on in his life. And after listening for a while, the minister said, I need to stop you and ask you, How long has it been since you took your vacation? And the man said, you know, I don't remember when I last took a vacation. He said, well, how much time are you given? He said, I'm given two weeks a year. He said, I want to encourage you to take all two weeks together. Take your family, take a long trip, go out to California, stop at the Grand Canyon, see all the beautiful things that God has made, and take the entire time and enjoy some time of quiet, and rest. He said, I'm going to do it. Well, he was excited when he got a phone call from the, minute, from the man taking the vacation. He thought it'd be kind of a report along the way. He said, well, how's this going? He says, going well. He says, well, where are you now? He says, well, I'm back home. He said, you're back home. He said, yes, it was a wonderful a vacation, everything, we got to see everything that we wanted to see, and best of all, we did it in half the time. Half the time. Who told him to do it in half the time? 
culture told him to do it half the time. I read about a teacher at a Christian high school who introduced the concept, what, a, what an idea, the concept of silence in her classroom. Ten minutes a day, that's all. The students were instructed to be relaxed, awake, open, aware, but silent. And after several weeks, they were learning how to do it. They had to learn how to do this without pulling out some device. And after, after two weeks or several weeks, they learned how to be silent. One boy made this comment. He said, it's the only time in my day that I'm not expected to achieve something. That's what he said. Guess what a parent said? I'm not paying all that tuition for my kids to sit around and do nothing. That's what the parent said. Ten minutes of silence. So special to one, so threatening to another. What's the difference here? Sadly for some, silence creates that uncomfortable, nervous feeling. It does not feel rich and full like the text we read. It feels barren and hollow, like a hole. It looks like this big, huge, empty hole that's swallowing up all this energy we have. And we usually become uneasy and preoccupied with one thought. When will this be over? When can I get going again? And we try to fill the uncomfortable hole in our lives with lots of things. Usually words. Words. Any kind of words. Turn the radio on, turn the television on. Words. But not quiet. In his book, The Way of the Heart, Henry Nouwen told about the power and the temptation of words. I want to read you what he said. Recently, I was driving through Los Angeles, and I suddenly had the strange sensation of driving through a huge dictionary. Wherever I looked, there were words trying to take my eyes from the road. They said, use me, take me, buy me, drink me, smell me, touch me, kiss me, sleep with me. And he said, in such a world, who can maintain respect for words? And it's true. Every day we are bombarded. We're overloaded with words. They stack up and they run together. And eventually we reach saturation point where we begin to lose our confidence in words. And guess which body of words begins to suffer now? God's words. I'm just full of words. So teachers lecture, ministers preach, politicians issue statements, executives make speeches. Every day of our year, all year long, our lives are full to the brim with words. And then when God speaks, we have no appetite for words. We have no room. We're crowded with activity. We're crammed with too much conversation. We're fat with too many words. Now, I want to stop for the sake of balance and say, Scripture does talk about doing and acting. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says, uses words, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or Matthew 12, verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Or John 13, 17, Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And then James 1, 22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
And these are a few of the texts that underline the value and the meaning and the importance of acting and doing. And of course, we could add to this James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. I'm not going to read it all, but it describes the harmony of faith and deeds. And so clearly, faith is something we do. Perhaps that's why of the over 100 occurrences of the word faith in the Gospel of John, none of them are nouns. All of them are verbs. Faith is something you do. I'm not talking about that kind of doing, though. There's another kind of doing that's at work in our world. And it has a very good reputation, but it has a very bad impact on people. It's the kind of doing that's not praised in Scripture. It's not commanded in Scripture, but it is praised in our fast-paced culture. Sometimes we call it productivity, and sometimes we say, time is money. And there we have the clue what's behind it all. Yet even the culture that promotes this kind of doing can see the effect it has on people, of burnout, of workaholism, hypertension, fatigue, poor judgment. These are some of the effects of this kind of doing, and this doing is doing us in. I was talking to my son on the phone last night, and we're alike in one way. Uh, He told me, Dad, I need to stop and go eat something. And I said, David, I said, your mother knows two men in the world that she can tell that they're have, they're either sleep-deprived or they haven't had food in lately because of their, their irrit- irritability. You and me. We have to have this. And so there's a kind of hypertension and, and fatigue that does us in because we're doing too much. Marsha Hornock rewrote the 23rd Psalm back when I was a very young man in campus ministry and I read it in a discipleship journal and I just kept it. I put it in a blog about 20 years later and she wrote me. She saw it and she said, uh, I'm glad you put that in there. I do, after the fact, give you permission to put it in your blog. <laughs> and she was glad to see it again. But I want you to hear her rewritten 23rd Psalm. It's in the style of our culture. The clock is my dictator. I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me to deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leads me in circles of frenzy for activity's sake. Even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it all done, for my ideal is with me. Deadlines and my need for approval, they drive me. They demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines. My in-basket overflows. Surely fatigue and time pressure shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the bonds of frustration forever. Wow. It's hard to miss the frantic, compulsive, agitated life that's produced by this kind of doing. As Charles Swindoll puts it, In place of a quiet, responsive spirit, we offer him an inner washing machine, churning with anxiety, clogged with too much activity, spilling over with resentment and impatience. 
this kind of doing pushes everything else out of the way as it elbows its way to the front. And it assumes an undeserved position of influence. And it begins to crowd out a major biblical theme. Here it is. Here's that theme that this kind of doing pushes out of the way. Psalm 32. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Psalm 37. Be still for the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Psalm 48. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Psalm 77. I will meditate on your works and consider your mighty deeds. Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. What's pushed out of the way? Waiting. Being still. Listening. Meditating. Pondering. Mulling it over. Sitting. Being quiet. That's not the underlying theme of our culture. In the same way that worldly doing has nothing to do with godly doing, waiting and sitting and listening, described in these texts, has everything to do with godly doing. It's the fuel for doing things God's way. In fact, it is the waiting that prepares us for, for biblical godly action. It's the quiet reflection that equips us for godly doing. Now, we all grew up hearing this phrase, I'm sure. Don't just sit there. Do something. All right? And I may have shared this with you before, but I want to reverse that and say, and, and, and choose a theme I think God would, don't just do something. Sit there. I think God would say that to us. Just rearrange it. You see, sitting is fast becoming a dying art. People feel like they have to be doing something. If they're not working, then they're jogging or shopping or playing or watching television. By the way, watching television is not sitting. It's watching. But there was a time when people actually practiced sitting. You would find them on porches. Remember those things? Porches? They're a place that, were, that was under the shade, uh, but out in the open air. And uh, maybe during the colder months when they didn't want to be out there, they'd be sitting in chairs around a warm area, a little stove or a fireplace. There were sitting benches on the courthouse lawn. There were park benches along the sidewalks. Houses had sitting rooms. Remember that? Sitting rooms. You went in the room and you sat. Richard Exley, in his book, The Rhythm of Life, described one of his favorite places to sit. 
Here's the story. Another private place was my grandma Miller's house. Granddad died when I was nine. After that, I began spending four and five nights a week with her. She couldn't read or write and didn't trust electricity. It was like stepping back into another age. Many a night we sat in comfortable silence, each entertained by our own thoughts, wrapped in the soft glow of a kerosene lamp. Sometimes we talked, but it wasn't necessary. Silence was a friend we both knew well and welcomed. Is silence a friend? Or silence a scary unknown? Sitting, thinking, quietly talking, it might look like nothing is happening, but guess what? Recharging a battery doesn't look like anything's happening. It just sits there. What's it doing? I don't know. It doesn't look like it's doing anything. It's recharging. And where would our world be without that power? Sitting restores the soul, and so don't just do something. Sit there. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anywhere in Scripture where we learn that God forces his way into our hearts? Does he storm our lives and take over our inner life by overpowering us? No, it's not there. God comes in when we stop and when we become still, when we issue the invitation, and then he comes in. And often he enters very slowly because we're frail. He's powerful. But, this is, but, but isn't this true of any significant truth or habit? Doesn't it all happen that way? It, st- it starts when I want it to start, when I invite it to start, and then it comes in slowly and carefully, and I examine it as, as it enters each little piece all along the way. It's slow. It's sure. It's permanent. It all comes in carefully. But first, we have to stop. Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. I have to think that through. The Jerusalem Bible captures this. I like it. It says, pause a while. It captures, I think, the sense of the word. Stop moving. Stop talking. Take a deep breath. Relax. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, writes this. There's an old proverb to the effect that when a man who opens his mouth closes his eyes... The purpose of silence and solitude is to be able to see and hear. When I close my mouth, I'm now listening to you. You've heard that person. You've been in conversation with a person who, while you were talking, you could see when they stopped listening and started to prepare for what they wanted to say to you. You could see it in their face. And they're not listening anymore. Close your mouth he says, and then you can see and hear. There are many kinds of noise in our world. There's external noise all around us, our phones, car horns. There's the background noise of our technology. 
And add to this the deadline noise as we rush through our day. And even though all this audible noise is bad enough, there's an inner noise that's even more painful. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Obeying Jesus does not mean that we completely shut out the noise of our doubts and our fears or our bad memories. No, in fact, it's when I'm alone with him, away from all that external noise, that I can often hear that internal noise more clearly, and I'm with the one who can help me deal with it. I'm not masking it over anymore. Wayne Oates calls this our noisy heart. It's the noisy heart that pushes us to get busy again, to turn on all that outer distraction and to mask the inner chaos that's there. It's being silent that can be painful, but that's why it's so important. First, we listen to our own heart made clear to us now by silence. In other words, we're bringing that chaos that is us to God and then the way begins to clear for God to bring his heart to us. We bring our heart to him. He gives his heart to us. It was Frederick William Faber who wrote, Whenever the sounds of the world die out in the soul or sink low, then we hear these whisperings of God. He's always whispering to us. Not only do we not always hear because of noise, hurry, and distraction, which life causes as it rushes on. Or as another writer wrote, it is a gentle, delicate voice only heard by those who no longer hear anything else. I'm turning it off now. I think most of us agree on the value of silence and the danger of noise. I know I'm talking to people who understand this. But what kind of noise do we have in mind here? Is it loud, irrational noise? Well, yes, to be certain. Evil, ungodly noise? Yeah, that too. But what about this? What about religious noise? What about religious noise? Howard Macy, in his book, Rhythms of the Inner Life, said, to approach God with only an incessant stream of words is a filibuster, not a prayer. On the other hand, listening prayer helps us to learn how to wait. Jesus himself said, don't come to me saying, Lord, Lord, we've done this and we've said this and we've been there. He said, I never got to know you. We never knew each other. You were there with religion, but we never got to know each other. What happens when we exchange secular noise, it's out, but now we have religious noise. Well, it may be clean, but maybe the thoughts aren't clear. It's still noise. Instead of being busy with people, now we're busy with God. Is that what he wants? Still, there's no room for quiet, for listening, for waiting, for reflection. I think God's attitude is pretty clear here. Amos chapter 4. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand 
your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. So he's looking down deep. And so even religious activity can become noise that cancels out the power of quiet and silence and waiting. Let me ask you this. Do we believe that God can be at work while we are at rest? Or do we think that we have to be busy for God to work? I mean, he can't possibly get it done without me. Psalm 4, verse 4. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Silent. I don't know how many of y'all ever heard the name or knew the man Andy T. Ritchie. Andy T. Ritchie was one of my teachers in college. He was the man who was legally blind and walked around campus. He walked from his home to school every day, taught his class, which was on worship. He talked slowly and had the deepest mellow. You'd love his voice, John Scott, voice. When he led singing in chapel, he did not need a microphone. But I learned so much just by observing him and watching him. He was a man of few but powerful words. And he offered words slowly, punctuated with long periods of silence. As one of my teachers, his words were always clear, and I never, ever grew impatient with those silent breaks in his sentences. Instead, I felt restful. I felt thoughtful as he carried me along in his words. I know that in his home worship, the Ritchie family would sing together. And one song they would sing was about silence. He reminded them that God would work in silence and he could be found there. Here are the lyrics to that song. In silence comes all loveliness, the dawn is ever still. No noise accompanies the dew that glistens on the hill. The sunrise comes up quietly. The moon is never heard. And love that animates the eyes surpasses any word. And prayer is best in solitude. It seems so very odd that long before I did not know in silence I'd find God. I think Jesus realized that life must be in balance, that with all the activity of his life, it had to be balanced by private time. He knew that the marketplace person must learn to be the quiet place person as well. And that's why in Mark 1, after all that's going on in his life, listen to the marketplace person find the quiet place. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. 
And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Marketplace person. Quiet place person. The stages in his life. Stage one, he receives love and power from God. Stage two, he shares that love and power with people. Stage three, he returns to replenish with God. That was his rhythm. Public, private. Active, quiet. Words, silence. Crowds, solitude. And the descriptions, his quiet time and his private moments, those are not describing sleep. Yes, he needed sleep. But it was a very alert aloneness, a very awake solitude. Wayne Oates wrote a book called Nurturing Silence in a Noisy Heart, and he has a silence test. And I want to give it to you. It's just some questions, and I'd like you to mull them over. Nine questions. First, what place and time are the quietest for you to experience in your regular day's routine? Two, who creates the most uproar, confusion, and stress? I don't need any names here. What have you done to change this? Do you prefer that uproar to silence? Three, what choices do you have to accomplish your day's work in a quieter, more strain-free way? Four, list any pockets of silence that exist in your work situation. Five, what are the kinds of noise that fills your days? And what have you done to lower the noise level for yourself and for others? Six, have you made any progress in breaking your addiction to television, telephone, radio, and stereo? Seven, have you caught yourself becoming fatigued, losing perspective, exercising poor judgment, and becoming confused? Did you immediately create some time of silence for yourself? Eight, what initiative have you taken to create specific times, places, and rituals for silence and solitude? And then finally, nine, are you aware of the silent presence of God in any personal way at all? Silence test. In stillness, we relinquish control. In silence, we become more aware of God. In the whirlwind of noise and activity, we only see our problems. And masking them with more noise doesn't help. Retreating into sleep often just postpones them till we wake up to them the next day. But being still and being quiet in God's presence creates a place for him to work. It was Henry Nouwen who wrote, Silence is the home of the Word. It's where I see it, where I read it, where I mull it over, where I think it through, where it has its impact on me in silence. But I have to stop. I have to be silent. 
to use the words of Psalm 46 and the song that we're about to sing. We have to be still and know that he's God. The invitation today is really not so much for you to come down here, although we'd love to pray with you if you do. I'd like to think that you would maybe have a conversation with somebody, somebody close to you, a spouse, a friend, about the conflict between noise and activity and silence and quiet. I'd like, I'd like to think that would happen tonight, someone, maybe tomorrow. I'd like to also think that maybe you would have a, a more clear determination to look for those places of silence. God would not tell us to have them if they were not there to be had. I know they're there. Let's think about all that together as we stand together and sing.